Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. One of my favorite food is soup. And we do soup summer, winter, all the time. Yesterday I cooked eight thigh... That's the voice of chef Jacques Pepin doing one of his famous cooking demonstrations. This man's cooking skills are truly legendary. Maybe you saw him on Top Chef. Jacques wrote the book on technique. Literally. It's actually called La Technique. Okay, guys, let's cook. Or maybe you watched him carve a turkey on The Tonight Show. It starts with when you roast it like this, you remove the wishbone. And here you got to pull on the other side. Let's make a wish. You got... Wow. Well, we both got our wishes came true. Yeah. <laughs> that was cool. Jacques has worked in top restaurants, cooked for world leaders, published dozens of cookbooks, and made hundreds of hours of TV, including some beloved collaborations with Julia Child. And I'll admit, I was pretty starstruck when I got to interview him. Can I get a picture for my mom? Do you mind? No, of course. <laughs> At heart, though, Jacques told me he's a miserly cook someone who doesn't waste a scrap of food. It's a lesson he learned as a child. My father never threw out a piece of bread. He would kiss it before he threw it out, and if he threw it out, it was to throw it to the chicken. The Second World War started when Jacques was a little boy in eastern France, and food was scarce during and after the fighting. It was Jacques's mother who did the shopping and cooking, and Jacques watched her stretch every morsel she had and transform it into something delicious. Oh, yes. My mother was a very thrifty, very miserly cook, and that's probably where I got it from. But, you know, there was nothing to eat, so she could do... I mean, we had no sugar, so she made the syrup with some turnips or whatever root vegetable that she had to, to reduce it, make a syrup out of it. Jacques was the middle son of three, so time was just as scarce for his mother as groceries were. He never forgot watching how efficiently she worked in the kitchen. A woman who has to feed a family... You know, and it used to be in France morning and night, twice a day, and under a certain amount of money. So that really teaches you not only economy in the buying of product, but in the spanning of time and in the use of equipment, economy of motion. Now at 87, Jacques continues to channel his mother's sense of thrift. So when he's doing a cooking demo, he doesn't just tell his audience what ingredients to use. So I have a potato here. Peel the potato. He shows them how to use what they already have, like when he makes what he calls fridge soup. Occasionally I go through the refrigerator, I have a piece of one thing or another, we do a soup with it. We had spinach yesterday for dinner, so I have that left. I have some salad, a wilted salad, and it's okay. I look at it, it's not damaged, and it's fine in the soup. 
Everything we eat has a story to tell. Welcome to If This Food Could Talk, a history show for everyone who eats. I'm Claudia Hanna. I teach Mediterranean cooking classes and lead culinary tours to Cyprus, Greece, and Turkey. I introduce food lovers from around the globe to a taste of the old world and to the history behind what they're eating. And you know what? I too am a miserly chef. Today, we'll hear the story of how miserly cooking became Jacques Pepin's tradition and his superpower. Then, food historian Helen Veit will talk about why what we eat and what we toss has evolved so much over the past hundred years. It has something to do with an appliance we all take for granted. We think of the stove, I think, as the center of a kitchen for people who cook. I think it's really the refrigerator. Plus, with Jacques as my inspiration, I'll take whatever's in my fridge and turn it into a fast, cheap meal that you can make too. We'll be back with Jacques in just a moment. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When Jacques Pepin was a child, it wasn't just the meals at home that left an impression on him. He saw his mom, Jeanette, put her skills to work as a restaurateur, too. Female chefs were rare in France back in the 1940s, but Jacques told me it was a different story in the region where he grew up. Where I come from in Lyon, Lyon is pretty well known for the formidable women of Lyon who are uh, like La Mer Brasier, three-star restaurant. So that, that's pretty common there. Uh, in my family in France, I was the first male to go into that business. So my two aunt, uh, cousin, sister-in-law, <laughs> mother, and they are not very easy to, to impress. I mean, I, at some point I was the chef to the president in France. When I go back to Lyon to my mother and see my aunt at a restaurant, if I get into the kitchen with her, she throw me out. She say, you use too much butter, get, get out of here. So, so no one was very impressed with my, my credential. Food was the family business, and Jacques remembers his mother fixing up, running, and then flipping at least four different restaurants in her career. And his father, Jean-Victor, played a supporting role. My father was a cabinet maker by trade, so he's the one who painted, redo door, redo window, redo floor, and, uh, and then they would try to sell it to get to a better restaurant and so forth. But uh, she had the restaurant in Neron, where we had a house there, which is in the suburb of Lyon, and it was called L'Hôtel L'Amour. 
the Love Hotel. I mean, from the people who were there before. <laughs> I don't know. The Love Hotel. Yeah. What was that like? I think there were about four rooms or five, and otherwise most of the clients which came here were were uh, local people that that came here all the time. You know, a lot of people came there either to play cards or play boule and all that, have a drink and have dinner. Local people, you know. My father there was doing the wine, of course. He bought the wine in barrel from producer and put it in bottle ourselves and so forth. So it was really a small hand operation which was done by a couple of people. The Pepin's restaurant felt like the social center of town. And that wasn't just about the wine, the card games, or the petanque tournaments. Their customers felt at home because they were well-fed, even though staples like meat and sugar were still limited by post-war rationing. I mean, people would come directly into the kitchen and uh, lift up the, the cover of the pot, say, that smells <gasps> good. Can I have some of that or some of this? Wow! Yeah, it was pretty... Really? It was, it was not like there was a big menu. <laughs> I mean, it was... <laughs> they came to your mom's things. kitchen. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Mm. Were you in the kitchen with her cooking? Often, yes, often. Trying to escape most of the time. (laughs) You're there to work as well. Of course. I mean, I don't ever remember coming out of school when I was small, getting into the house and telling my mother, I'm bored. She would have said, you're what? (laughs) No, are you kidding? My brother and I tried to escape when they came back from school. (laughs) Otherwise... You know, I don't think ever my parents asked me whether we did our own work or not. It was part of that, and that was our job, and that was it. You know, yeah. so we wa- wash the bottle for the wine, <laughs> peel a potato or whatever. Yeah, yeah. sure. And the Hotel L'Amour, we had uh, about five or six or a dozen chicken filling with uh, whatever left over, uh, and, and us picking up clover to feed the chicken. These chickens the boys were feeding were not allowed inside the Hotel L'Amour, but they were central to its success. The Pepin boys could feed the chickens at no cost. They ate table scraps and clover and scratched up worms and insects to eat in the yard. And the chickens gave back. They provided essential protein for an infinite number of recipes. Yeah, especially the eggs, uh, maybe more than the chicken. Mm. You know, the eggs is uh, an unsung uh, ingredient, you know, which appear, you know, in soup, in souffle, in dessert, in first course, in main course, all over the place. You have eggs, and eggs are expensive, were expensive at the time. And so uh, when she killed the chicken, it was really in the last resort. So the, the, the chicken were not to be roasted because mm. they were too old. Mm. And at that point, it was to make a, a soup and do a stock and uh, a kind of pot au feu, you know, we call it in France. When Jeanette did slaughter a plump young chicken, it was for restaurant guests, not her family. And not a bit was wasted. She used every drop of blood and scrap of skin. I mean, she would grab the chicken and uh, press on the side of the mouth, throw the chicken up in his mouth, and with a scissor, she cut under the, the tongue. Uh, a big cut there and hold him up, the chicken upside down and all the blood comes out of it in a, in a little bowl usually where she put a bit of vinegar to prevent the blood from coagulating. That blood would go right into a rich sauce. The bone into the simmering stock pot. And the neck skin had a purpose too when combined with other odds and ends. And then she used to cut the chicken just under the neck and under the shoulder and keep that long neck with the skin on. And she used the skin to stuff it and make a sausage out of it. If she had leftover spinach, 
some ground meat, some mushroom, or whatever it may have been, she would have put it in there. Do you remember one of her favorite recipes people love to order? Well, one of her favorite recipes I still do with the chicken and cream sauce. Sometimes if she had uh, wanted a beef patio, then she put some tarragon in it and some mushroom. But otherwise, it was pretty simple. Some cream, a bit of white wine, a piece of onion, and uh, it's still I still remember the taste. The food you have as a child and those smell, those tastes, you know, that your mother does and so forth, is very visceral. You know, it stays with you the rest of your life. When Jacques left home at 13, the memories and lessons of his childhood did stay with him, even after his mama dropped him off at a place that was totally different than anywhere he'd been before. It was called the Hotel de l'Europe, and it was an impressive building in an upper-class area of France called Bourg-en-Bresse serving a wealthy and discerning clientele. This was where Jacques started his apprenticeship and put on his first pair of chef pants with blue and white checks. He started to spend his days in a kitchen where there was a domed glass ceiling overhead, cleaning and carrying coal for the stove. Then he advanced to peeling vegetables, gutting fish, and plucking chickens. By his mid-teens, Jacques had some serious chef skills. He was training the apprentices and finally cooking dishes himself. It wasn't long before Jacques moved on and made his way to Paris, a city no one in his family had even visited. He brought his own set of chef's knives in a wooden chest his father had made him. Paris in the late 1940s was, of course, the center of French culture, and Jacques soon found work in its most high-end kitchens. When he arrived at the Hotel Plaza Atine, he was one of no fewer than 48 chefs, a team that produced a nonstop parade of smooth purees on ice, creamy mousses, and elegant sliced truffles. But this upscale world was not where Jacques would become a star. Not yet. As talented as he was, he wasn't there to create dazzling new recipes. As a young chef, his job was to memorize how the dishes on the menu were done and recreate them. So even in Paris, when I worked there, you work and you conform to whatever the recipe are in the house that we are working at, trying to duplicate it, to do it exactly it wasn't really to express yourself and say, make sure they know I did it, I signed that dish, like a lot now with young chefs. The chefs here were supposed to be invisible. And the diners certainly were not coming back into the kitchen to look under the pot lids. I asked Jacques if he experienced a culture shock among the well-to-do Parisians. But he said no. The thrifty culture of the kitchen was familiar. Behind the scenes, nothing went to waste. Oh, no, no, we didn't. I mean, you know, even even in a kitchen like this, you do something fancy, but the rest of it, you know, the day after, you, you feed the employee, you feed other people, you retrieve the food in one way or the other, which is the way it's done. Even in 1957, when Jacques found himself in charge of the kitchen at the French prime minister's residence, he still did not have ingredients or time to spare. Like when he was preparing a state dinner for the likes of Charles de Gaulle. If we do if we do a state dinner, I have to organize myself to know what to buy and know what to do and how many people. The government changed hands three or four times in just a couple years that Jacques was there. And he had to get his timing just right for each new president. Like the goal, I have to say, was really good because if he say we eat... The 12.45 or 12.30, well, within four or five minutes, he moved to the table, even if the guests were not all there. But less mindful leaders were a challenge for a chef preparing delicate meals. Uh, with Félix Gaillard, another president I had before, he said we'll eat at 12, 
12.30 and they come at 2. And uh, so in addition to that, uh, he always wants souffle. He loves souffle, you know. So cheese souffle to start. Well, when the president sits down, he's not going to wait. So I had to add like four souffle, one going down, one going home, one ready to go into the oven to pick it up at the right moment, you know, for a lunch of uh, six or eight people. So. Oh, my gosh. You didn't throw away the extra souffles, right? Oh, no. You unmold it and you enjoy it. It, it deflates, but it's very good cold. It's still great. I love that image of Jacques in his mid-twenties, huddled over some deflated but delicious cheese souffles. But he was getting ready for a new adventure. In 1959, Jacques packed his bags and he took what he'd learned about classic French cuisine and being thrifty to the USA. Jacques had heard that it would be easy for a French chef to find work in the U.S. And when he arrived, those rumors were true. Haute cuisine, or classic French cooking, defined fancy food for American high society in the 50s and 60s. So the skills Jacques had for making creamy, meaty, buttery food were in high demand. Jacques soon landed a job at Le Pavillon, a spot that had been the pinnacle of New York City dining. It was the kind of job that could open doors for a young chef, if he wanted it to. And that door did open in 1961, when John F. Kennedy and First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis were staffing up for their new administration. And of course, their White House chef should be French. But when they offered the job to Jacques, he said, no, merci. I asked him why. So I had done that work in France for a couple of years with three presidents. You know, so uh, the cook was really low on the social scale and uh, no publicity or anything like this. You know, I served Nehru, I served Eisenhower, Tito, Macmillan, those were the head of state at the time. But I would ne- ne- no one would ever, ever call you to the dining room for kudo for people to applaud. That didn't exist. The cook was in the kitchen in a black hole and no one ever, if anyone came to the kitchen, was to complain about something. So I did not really realize to a certain extent the potential of going to the, the White House too. I mean, for me, I say I've done that. So he let another young chef he knew, René Verdun, take the White House job instead. And like uh, a year later, he sent me a picture of him with the president, you know, standing up. I said, so I never took picture with the president when I was in <laughs> France. So, so it was the early, early 60s. Things were changing and moving forward, you know, in a different way. Jacques was changing too. He wanted to make an entirely different kind of food for a different kind of eater. Enter Howard Johnson. On the road around the corner, here's the place to go. The orange root of Howard Johnson's. Join the folks who know. Howard Johnson's restaurants were everywhere in America in the 1960s. Over 600 locations across the country. It was the first and biggest restaurant chain at the height of its popularity and still expanding, when Johnson personally asked Jacques to work for him. Food historians credit Hojo's with basically inventing the concept of roadside dining and restaurant franchising. The company developed ways to deliver a consistent menu on a mass scale. Hojo's bright, comfy dining rooms and hearty, affordable food were designed to welcome middle-class motorists and families. Americans were literally eating it up. And this mission really got Jacques fired up. He already knew delicious food did not have to be expensive or exclusive. 
Now he could experiment with how to make it in a whole new way. Yes, it, and it was rewarding in, in, in many ways because it was totally different than what I had done before, a different world for me, you know. And the idea was to be able to feed people in a large production like that and good food, relatively inexpensive. Mr. Johnson said, you have carte blanche, you do whatever you want. When Jacques went to work in the central kitchen at Howard Johnson's, it was a major turning point. No more cooking haute cuisine for wealthy elites. And Jacques found he had passion and talent for economies of scale. His eyes lit up when he told me about the recipes he made and the tools he had to work with. I had a little test kitchen with butter, we had fresh onion, we had it. So I started in the kitchen with maybe four or six chicken to poach, take the meat of this, do a cream sauce, do a chicken pot pie, freeze it. Uh, we had two uh, chemists there, so they analyze it, uh, they break it down to see the amount of bacteria, the amount of time to read it. I learned a great deal. And by the time I kind of work out the recipe, I say, okay, let's do in a little kettle outside 20 or 30 chicken. We did. And eventually, uh, three months later, uh, we're doing 3,000 pounds of chicken in that 1,000 gallon kettle. Those 1,000 gallon kettle are ladder on the side. You would go up. Where did you even get a kettle that's 1,000 gallons? Like that, oh, I don't yeah. even, <laughs> where do you get we, one? We, we have several of those, <laughs> not only one. <laughs> they also had a rotating oven that was 20 feet tall. And you could look up and see massive cranes lifting giant baskets of ingredients. Making quality meals for large numbers of everyday people was not just rewarding. It was good business, too. And it would be Jacques' key to success in his next venture. Jacques stayed at Hojo's for 10 years. And when some investors approached him about starting his own place, Jacques opened La Potagerie right on Fifth Avenue in New York City. So, but when you had a chance to open up your own restaurant in New York, you yeah. chose to build it economical, right? Oh, it sure. Was, can you tell us a little bit about it? What did it look like? What was the, the premise of the restaurant? Yeah, it, it was a soup place. That's it, you know. We moved in that little restaurant on Fifth Avenue up to 800 people a day. <gasps> so, uh, it was, well, it was a glorified cafeteria. So, you choose your bread, baguette. Croissant and black bread. People took whatever they wanted. And we did three different types of soup every day. Like a big black, black bean soup with sausage in it too. A chicken soup and fish soup. And in summer, we did one cold soup. You could have uh, soda or, or coffee. or, or uh, you know, we, we had beer and, and wine, but it was extra. But otherwise, the whole thing was $3.25. Jacques believed in feeding people without draining their bank accounts. And he loved creating the efficiencies that made that possible. Coming up, we'll hear about a big turning point in Jacques' life that was totally unexpected and changed almost everything. It would force him to find a new way to do the work he loved. Plus, we'll get a food historian's perspective on Jacques' love for thrifty cooking in a culture that was becoming increasingly wasteful. He's not tolerant of food waste, and he doesn't want you to be either. It's just part of how he cooks. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. 
Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It was in 1974 that a terrible accident forced Jacques Pepin to completely reinvent himself and his work as a chef. Jacques was living in upstate New York with his wife, Gloria, and their young daughter, Claudine. And one night, Jacques was alone in the car, hurrying down the highway, when he swerved to avoid a deer, causing a devastating crash. Jacques' injuries were so serious that doctors weren't sure he was going to make it. Thankfully, Jacques did recover, but the long days and physical demands of working in professional kitchens were over. As he entered his 40s, Jacques did not slow down. Instead, he began a new path as an educator. And he not only taught professional chefs, he was about to reach his biggest audience yet, home cooks. During the next four decades, Jacques published over 30 books. In the early 1980s, he started making his famous cooking shows, and he never stopped. He still posts cooking videos today, like this one you can find on the Jacques Pepin Foundation website. So I have about half a cup of uh, onion here, two, three cloves of small clove of garlic here. One thing that did not change about Jacques was his belief in using what you've got in the kitchen, especially if there's a fond memory attached to it. In the pantry here, I have a can of uh, beans, you know, lima beans, and I have a can of spam. This goes back a long time for me, the can of spam, uh, probably during the war when I was a little kid, so that's close to 80 years ago. Uh, my father. That's right. Jacques Pepin, master chef, has a spam recipe that goes back to his childhood. And I'm going to put that under the broiler. The spam steak with lima beans. Happy cooking. What I hear in these cooking lessons is how Jacques Pepin has remained dedicated to the sensibilities he learned as a boy. Use everything. Don't waste. And a great chef can make a meal out of whatever's around. And while that way of thinking about food was common when Jacques was a kid, the way the world has looked at thrifty cooking since then, that has changed a lot. I was curious about how that change happened. So before we say abiento de Jacques, I want to share something we learned from Helen Veit, a food historian from Michigan State University. Jacques Pépin talks about miserly cooking, which, which of course, I think has this negative connotation, but I, I, I'm sure he doesn't mean it in a negative way. It's, it's a sort of, uh, you know, proud paying attention. That approach to cooking is the way most people in most time periods in the history of humans have approached food uh, with care and attention and respect. Saving on food and ingredients is still a necessity in most kitchens around the world. But how we achieve that goal and people's attitudes about what's worth saving versus what goes in the bin would be unrecognizable to someone like Jacques' mother today. That's due in part, Helen said, to the refrigerator. So refrigeration was enormously significant in allowing people to preserve food in a non-transformed state when people can really, you know, take a whole meal that wasn't eaten or a whole dish and put it in the refrigerator and pull out essentially exactly the same food that you put in three days earlier. And visually, and to some degree in terms of taste, it's, it's not really changed. Refrigeration changed how we eat, 
and how we use food. We think of the stove, I think, as the center of a kitchen for people who cook. Uh, I I think it's really the refrigerator. Helen says before home refrigeration became commonplace in the U.S. in the 1920s and 30s, food and life looked very different. For most people, historically, having access to abundant food wasn't a given, which is not, of course, to say that all Americans have access to enough today. They don't. But that being said, it can be hard for us to really imagine how much most people's lives in the past, not just in America, but globally, were focused on getting food. Food was everybody's work. And I'm speaking about men and children as well as women. People had to make the most out of what was available to them by eating a wide variety of animals and animal parts, and by using a whole arsenal of time-consuming methods for keeping food edible. Making cheese was a way to preserve fresh milk. Smoking and salting would make meat last, and you could pickle anything and everything. They pickled eggs, they pickled meat, and of course, that really changed how things tasted. Americans in the 19th century and before ate things that were much brinier, smokier, saltier. We do still eat some foods that are pickled, salted, smoked, or fermented. In fact, check out our entire episode on fermented foods in our podcast feed. That said, though, these are techniques that home cooks in the past had to use to make sure their families had enough food to survive. Helen says with refrigeration, most home cooks forgot the preservation techniques they'd relied on for hundreds of years. But it did create a whole new category of food, the leftover. And at first, leftovers had real appeal. Starting in the Depression, there is some glamour attached to leftovers, especially before everybody has a refrigerator. As leftovers are becoming more and more of a daily part of many Americans' lives, we see this kind of unique approach to them, which is transformation, ideally into an unrecognizable form so that family members don't realize they're eating yesterday's leftover tuna casserole. Instead, the leftovers are sculpted into little crevettes or this called for some creativity, sometimes artistic flair. By the 1950s, 98% of Americans owned refrigerators and leftovers were incredibly easy to preserve. But ironically, that's also when many Americans stopped eating them with delight and started giving them a big old eye roll. Helen explains some of the developments that caused leftovers to fall from grace. One is just the sheer abundance of food in the United States, abundance that no one in the history of the world had ever seen on this scale, thanks in large part to the industrialization of agriculture, to the existence of long-distance shipping, to to refrigerated rail cars and trucks. Things like reliable canning. All of a sudden, there was food that was cheaper than it had ever been. Helen says, of course, there were still Americans who struggled to afford enough food. But food was seen as way less precious than it had ever been. When we see leftovers talked about in popular culture in the 60s and 70s and later, it's often as a joke. The, the idea that, you know, a wife is trying to, to dupe her family members with some dubious casserole and, and people are skeptical, rightly skeptical. People became comfortable with food waste in a way that was never acceptable in the past. And it's only rather recently that we may have entered a new age of appreciating leftovers and a less wasteful approach to our food in general. 
I've seen food prices shooting up at the grocery store lately, and it makes me think twice before I toss some leftovers out. One of the changes that I I think is happening slowly, maybe unevenly, is an awareness that even if you can afford economically to waste food, it involves waste that you might not be comfortable with in other ways, ecological waste, the, the cost and the resources, the water, the land that go into creating food is something that people are, I think, starting to become more aware of. That being said, Americans still waste an enormous amount of food, sometimes through lack of cooking knowledge. To really make the best use of leftovers, it's not always possible to just microwave them and eat them. Often what you have left over are small quantities of ingredients. What do you do with those? How do you make use of them? If if you don't know much about cooking, that's quite daunting. And for over 40 years, Jacques Pepin has been teaching those skills. One of the things that you see when you look at his recipes and, and his techniques is that this attention to not wasting food, using up different kinds of foods, uh, is just integrated at every step. He's not tolerant of food waste, and he doesn't want you to be either. It's, he's not aggressive about it, but it's, it's just part of how he cooks is, you know, well, you're using this part of the animal now. What are you going to do with the other part? Or, you know, now that you have this, this part of the greens that you haven't used, you know, you're, you, there are ways to use that up, too. And that's essentially what Jacques told me, too. Well, I mean, food is expensive. I mean, it's very gratifying, too, to be able to feed people with, with a, a you know, minimal amount of money, a minimal amount of movements, better results. So it's always, it's always better. You know? And it's part of, a, as I say, part of our tradition. You know, the, the point is, when you say leftover food, there is a derogatory term to this one. In fact, it shouldn't be. You know, whatever is left over, if you very often you do something with it, which is better than the original. No, very often people do a roast chicken, for example, and uh, they want to reheat it to, and it tastes reheated. I mean, uh, roast chicken doesn't work well, but if you pick the meat of the bone and if you have a bit of chicken stock and do a cream sauce to do a, you know, a chicken pot pie or something like that, it's very good. You can call that miserly cooking, or you can just call it cooking, because... Historically speaking, they're kind of one and the same. It's always been that way for Jacques Pepin. And if you ask me, his dishes and his life have been richer for it. No one, you know, throw food away the way we do in America. You know, I mean, people, uh, you're in West Africa, there are four chickens and they have them for the eggs. I mean, they survive with that. They eventually they kill the chicken. But, you know, everything is used. And uh, the, the wattle, you know, the comb, the feet. I mean, yes, of course, everything was used. And most countries in the world have that sense of, uh, you know, that sense of economy. I mean, it's not something new. And uh, for me, certainly, I go into a restaurant and I see a young chef does a fantastic dish, beautifully decorated. I'm not as impressed as I see another one who does a dish and use the leftover to do this and that, which is the normal way to cook, you know, so. Thank you. Thank you. Really, I think you have led a beautiful life your well, way. And I just admire you so very much. I think you're just awesome. I did it my way. No, no, no. Bravo, bravo. <laughs> Before we go, I promised it. You're getting it. A whatever's in Claudia's fridge recipe, inspired by Jacques Pepin's philosophy of using what you've got. Just the other day, I dove in. 
I save everything. I have no idea what's in this fridge. Oh, these tomatoes look bad. Okay, what else do I have in here? We got some feta cheese, looks pretty good. Spring mix, I've got an organic spring mix, so let me grab that. I've got cucumbers. Those look pretty good shape. As you can see, it was kind of a hodgepodge. Half of a lime, half of a really juicy lemon, half of another juicy lemon. Oh my gosh, this is no longer a lemon. It's like, it's a ball. Hear that? I have, why do I, who's opening all these lemons? I've got half lemons all over the place. But inspiration finally struck. I have an idea. I've got carrots, radishes. I had a bunch of veggies, some eggs, olives, and canned tuna. So I made it into a totally unconventional spin on the Niçoise salad. A huge one with plenty of protein to make sure it was filling. And I topped it off with my own homemade Caesar dressing. I'll be honest, it wasn't the best salad in history, but the homemade Caesar dressing makes almost anything delicious. You can find my dressing recipe and a few hacks for how you could turn leftovers into a brand new dish on our website, ifthisfoodcouldtalk.com. You'll also find a link to many cooking tutorials on the website for the Jacques Pepin Foundation. And for more miserly recipes from the top miserly chef himself, look for his latest cookbook, Jacques Pepin, Cooking My Way. It just came out in September. And from my kitchen to yours, Tislamadik, friends, bless your hands. Next month is National Native American Heritage Month, so don't miss our November 2nd episode celebrating the American bison. We'll talk about why this iconic animal is central to indigenous American history and to a new generation of indigenous ranchers and chefs. Thanks for listening to If This Food Could Talk with me, Claudia Hanna. If you want to support us, you can follow If This Food Could Talk on your favorite podcast listening app. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really helps. You can also get updates on bonus content by following me and American Public Television on Instagram, X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook. You can find more information on all of our guests this season on each episode's show notes. Production by Reva Goldberg, Carriot Harmon, Tanner Robbins, Jacob Lewis, Claudia Hanna, Nate Toby, John Barth, and the team at Great Feeling Studios. Editing by Yasmin Khan. Sound design by Jacob Lewis and Jason Sheasley. Associate producer, Kate Hayes. If This Food Could Talk is based on an original concept by Claudia Hanna. Executive producers for APT Podcast Studios are Jim Dunford, Cynthia Fenneman, and Sean Halford. Legal by Cody Brown. Special thanks to the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU. You heard some of Jacques Pepin's cooking videos, courtesy of Claudine Pepin, Tom Hopkins, and the Jacques Pepin Foundation. APT, American Public Television, is the leading syndicator of high-quality, top-rated programming to American public television stations. You can learn more at aptonline.org. <laughs>